Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Let People Prosper Show. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Today, we have a great guest, a happy warrior, a freedom fighter, a liberty warrior, and just an overall great person, Jonathan Williams. Jonathan, welcome to the Let People Prosper Show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Greetings from the land of make-believe here in Washington, D.C., where I am. And I have to say, that was uh, that was a very kind introduction. And I guess it proves that not all forms of inflation are harmful after all. <laughs> well, that's true. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Jonathan, as we've known each other for a number of years now. And um, you've been very successful in many ways. And I also know that you're a great family man and, and everything. And so I know that it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Let me get started though for the audience telling you a little bit them a little bit about you I want to really go over your bio here as we then start to dive into all the big issues of the day we're going to talk about his his book his report rich states poor states that looks at a comparison of all the states and where they're heading unfunded liabilities of states um, you know there's just so much that Jonathan has worked on over the years that we really want to dive into there at the American Legislative Exchange Council we've got a, a lot to discuss we'll also discuss about the current economy you know like we can't can't, we can't go without talking about current events. So you'll want to stick through throughout the entire show. Remember, you can find all of the show notes page at vancegan.substack.com. That's where you can find all the show notes page and find this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you usually listen to your podcast. And please leave a rating. Uh, that'll also be helpful. So let's just dive right back in here. So Jonathan Williams is the Chief Economist and Executive Vice President of Policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. You might hear that throughout uh, our conversation, where he works with state policymakers, congressional leaders, and members of the private sector to develop fiscal policy solutions for the states. Williams founded the ALEC Center for State Fiscal Reform in 2011, whenever he was 10 years old, <laughs> and co-authors Rich States, Poor States, ALEC Laffer Economic State Competitiveness Index with Reagan economist Dr. Arthur Laffer and Stephen Moore. Prior to joining ALEC, Williams served as staff, staff economist at the Nonpartisan Tax Foundation, authoring numerous tax policy studies. Williams's work has appeared in many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, the Financial Times, Toronto Store, and Investors Business Daily. He is a contributor for The Hill and a columnist at Tax Analyst, the leading provider of tax news and analysis for the global community. Williams also serves on the advisory board of the State Financial Officers Foundation and as an adjunct fellow at the Kansas Policy Institute. He has written for the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. In addition, Williams has, uh, was a contributing author of In Defense of Capitalism. Williams has spoken to audiences across all 50 states and provided testimony for the U.S. Congress, as well as numerous state legislative bodies. His work has been featured at the federal level by the White House, the Congressional Joint Committee, Economic Committee, and the U.S. House Committee on Ways and Means. He is a frequent guest on talk radio shows and has appeared on numerous television outlets, including the PBS NewsHour, Fox Business News, and Bloomberg News. Williams is also the recipient of the prestigious Ludwig von Mises Award in economics. Jonathan, again, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. I've been looking forward to uh, joining you. Congrats on really taking this show to the next level and uh, just, just doing such a great job communicating on so many of the important issues that Americans face across the country. Well, well thank you, Jonathan. And it's, uh, it's, um, I really appreciate that a lot coming from you um, as you've, you've been someone who I've uh, aspired to be over, over time as you've really been working on these issues for longer than I have and done such great work. So thank you for all that you're, you've done 
um, and are and continuing to do. So with our liber- with our you know happy warrior mindsets that we have, what drives you, Jonathan? What really gets you going? Uh, I know you have your feet in the fire and a lot of different things, but when when you wake up, what gets you going on a day to day basis? Well, you know that's a great question. It's uh, being in the trenches fighting some of these really big policy fights uh, you and I have over the years together. Uh, you know, you have to take a step back, you know, sometimes, and that's an important question to ask yourself is, you know, what what is it that uh, that does drive you and what drives you know, people across the board? And for me, I mean, I think it's the uh, just the goal of empowering people and uh, empowering individuals to make their own decisions in a free country. I mean, and how unique and blessed we are to live in a country like we do. That is so rare in the course of human history that we have set up a, our founders were were very wise to set up the checks and balances that they have, as well as the protections of individual rights that are so rare when you look at world governments all across the globe. And it's somebody that's now uh, been in uh, 40 countries and, uh, you know, studied a lot of the the governmental uh, situations in those countries. And, uh, you know, God, you know, God bless blessed America greatly with the kind of people that were in power when we came into existence and said, hey, enough is enough from British tyranny and from you know the tax rebellion and, and, and so many of the other things that you know drove those decisions. But then they, when they set up the American experiment, um, they put several things in place that continue to motivate me but just by you know empowering people versus empowering you know, elected bureaucrats in many cases, unelected bureaucrats in many cases, or those that would seek to take away power from individuals in other countries, but the American Constitution and really the American experiment is so unique, uh, and that is that it puts the dignity behind the individual to live up to their God-given potential, whatever that is, to explore their dreams, to have the opportunity be unlimited, really, to what any man, woman, or child can accomplish if they work hard and uh, and live by the rules and actually uh, have that work ethic that gets them across the finish line. Some of these incredible stories of American entrepreneurs have gone on to become just incredibly successful and to provide uh, jobs and, and uh, goods and services for all of us, those kind of opportunities wouldn't be available in other countries that don't put the right check and balance on government power and don't have the emphasis on empowering individual rights and the individual. So for me, uh, getting a chance to work in the states and you know back to the founders for a minute, is the idea of federalism is you know quintessentially American. I mean, the Swiss and a few other countries you know have their federalist type of systems, but the way that the founders intended federalism in the Tenth Amendment was the powers that are not given to the federal government directly, uh, nor prohibited to the states, ought to be reserved for the states, but also more importantly, the people of the states to self-govern whenever possible. And so, I mean, that was the goal is to disempower big government, to have a limited uh, government, but then to empower individuals and, and civic society, really, and churches and, and others to pick up the, the slack and to actually do what it takes to, to grow a, a nation like we have. And so the federalism aspect is something that what I do every day is to hopefully disempower big government here at the federal level and empower states and then the people of the states to really make the decision that matter most uh, to our country and, of course, to matter most to us individuals. And so it's a, it's a neat thing. I mean, as I hire uh, people to come out of the, the great ALEC team here uh, in our policy department that I oversee, um, I can guarantee them one thing is that you will not be bored because the fight for liberty, right, and the price of liberty is eternal right. vigilance, right? And we absolutely 
cannot let up this idea of preserving and enhancing the American experiment because it's so unique and it's so powerful to empower individuals over government. Well, well said, uh, Jonathan, and, and um, you hit on many good points there about our history, our, our founding, um, and what drives you. And, and it's really interesting to hear you say those things because it, um, you're really showing it each and every day. And out of all the things that you do, it's, it's really different home. And I wonder, you know, when, when did you join Alec? Well, going way back to 2007. So I just okay. uh, celebrated my 15th year uh, here. And it's a great organization devoted to limited government, free markets, and federalism are our three guiding Alec principles. And we as an organization are going to turn 50 years old next year and hope that many of you will join us for our 50th anniversary gala here in Washington. Hopefully you can join us, Vance, and celebrate, you know, 50 years of Fighting for those things at the state level because, you know, we believe that, in fact, most decisions uh, are not made or should not be made here in Washington. Most good decisions, anyways, they need to be reserved for the states. And so waking up every day and working with the hardworking men and women who serve as American state legislators, many times in more or less a volunteer basis, they're not paid uh, at a full-time salary. Certainly, you know this well from Texas. And they do it out of the goodness of their heart, but they do it because they believe in the American experiment and they believe in their people and their constituents and getting a chance to work with more than 7,000 of them across the country. Now being in all 50 states on the ground over the years and working with our ALEC members across the board um, is just a thrill of a lifetime. And that's, you know, why, you know, as you know, this town very well, Vance, you know, people think in two year cycles here in Washington, D.C. And that's why you see yeah. D.C. groups and D.C. individuals turn over every two years people are finding new opportunities for themselves uh, but I felt strongly enough about this you know the concept the principles that we've been talking about but Alec is just a unique vehicle in order to move the ball forward to those principles I mean I, I have not to see another group out there across the United States that accomplishes anything and I've said this on the outside of Alec it's not self-serving that I'm saying this when I, before I came to Alec I also said the same thing and that's why I've stayed here for 15 years and just seeing the amazing work that our members, including you, that have been so instrumental uh, working with us at ALEC and the state legislators across the board have been able to achieve. Well, yeah, that's fantastic. And I think another great thing about ALEC is all the model legislation that y'all provide that's access at the fingertips to these legislators, nonprofit you know, staff as well at, the, at a lot of these think tanks across the country that can begin to champion some of these key reforms. I remember working with you, Jonathan, a lot on the, um, the spending limit model legislation a few years ago. And now it's been key to getting some of that passed. I mean, it was passed last session here in Texas, uh, a key spending limit reform. We've seen some of those others go into other states. And, and now I've also seen a lot of, you know, the work that you've been working well on with tax revenue triggers or the property tax. What was it called again? The property tax one? Oh, the truth in taxation. Yes, yes exactly. that's the one. Truth in taxation. Uh, I wonder if you could give us some some good insights from what you've work, been working on with the budget and property taxes. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, it's um, property taxes, certainly in Texas, but you know, in states all across the country have become one of the bigger challenges facing state elected officials. And one of the big challenges, as you know very well, is the vast majority of property taxes are not decided on at the state capital level. 
They're decided on by local units of government that make the decision of how much do we want to spend and then how much do we need to raise to cover our bills, right? Because they have to balance their budget. Something totally foreign concept to here in Washington, D.C., the way that the federal government does budgeting is, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, being on the inside of that to trying to fight for the good things in the Trump administration there. But when it comes to this property tax issue, I, you know, you've heard it too, but, you know, I can't tell you the amount of times I've talked to state legislators that say, you know, hey, we, we're getting beat up when we're going to the doors and talking to our constituents because the property tax is being high. But yet in 95, 97, 98% of all property tax collections come from local units of government. And so why are state level officials being blamed when it's actually local taxing and spending decisions that are driving property taxes? And so uh, for many years, it was very difficult to try to get a, I think, a policy solution outside of maybe like a hard cap on the growth of spending, you know, taxpayers' bill of rights in Colorado, what you worked with us on on model uh, policy and ALEC, you know, at the state level, also applying that to stopping the overspending at the local level. That's a a very good thing. It's also a heavy lift sometimes, depending on the political uh, jurisdiction and what the makeup is at the city or county level. And so studying uh, Utah, which, as you know, has been number one in rich states, poor states for economic outlook for all 15 editions of that book as we put it together. And there's a lot to unpack there. And I as began to write more about, you know, why is it Utah's had the staying power at number one, I started looking more into the background on a few of the key policy elements that kept it there. And one is this law that they've had on the books since 1985 called Truth and Taxation. And it turns out that Tennessee also has a derivative of that right. on the books. And then more recently, we've seen success. It's become ALEC model legislation. And now recently, Kansas and Nebraska have instituted it. And, uh, and of course, in Texas, you've made some huge strides on property tax reform. Iowa and several other states have made some impressive moves. But essentially what it gets to the heart of is there's a lack of transparency in many cases of why is it that your bill keeps going up every year when it comes to your property tax bill? You know, and I looked at my own here in Northern Virginia, and we have local officials all over the country looking people straight in the face and telling you, hey, we've held the line on property taxes or we've cut property taxes this year. And you look at your bill and you wonder, well, why is it $500 more than it was last year? You just held the line on property taxes. And that's the, the heart of the issue, getting to what's the driver of property taxes why isn't there more transparency about it? And of course, there's the two-prong issue. There's the rate and there's the assessment. And what we've seen all across the country is assessment values have been driving you know, everything through the roof recently. Of course, we can talk about current events with Federal Reserve action and the rates going up on mortgages, which is slowing down a lot of real estate markets across the country. But at least for the last several years, assessments have gone through the roof. Their governments are pocketing that extra revenue, saying that we're keeping the check on property taxes and property tax bills keep going higher and higher. And so truth and taxation actually requires local units of government to say, yes, we are going to collect more than we did the year before. It doesn't stop them from doing that like a hard cap, but it says you've got to notify your taxpayers. You've got to send them a postcard in the mail saying we're going to raise your property taxes, have a public hearing, hear the important input from taxpayers. And then this is the fun part, Vance, is then they have to put their name on the line and say, 
yes, we're going to vote to raise your property taxes or we're not going to vote to raise your property taxes, then then everyone can see where the chips fall as to if their local elected official is really trying to keep their property taxes in check or not. And, and I think it's revolutionary. And once it especially has time to go into effect in places like Kansas and Nebraska, we're already seeing some incredible good early results out of Kansas. Dave Traubert, our mutual friend from the Kansas Policy Institute, has reported that of a huge percentage of jurisdictions now are not even looking to raise any more revenue than they had the year before because they don't want to go through this transparency process and they don't want to have a recorded vote, certainly not to raise taxes in an election year. So I think it's a game changer. And it's been one of the toughest issues, I think, at the state level to try to tackle in a holistic way, because if you try to just tackle it at the state level without going to the root level of it at the local level, I think we're just kind of uh, reshuffling deck chairs to some extent. And so getting to that heart of the issue, I think, is the, is the key. Yeah. No, those have been spectacular reforms that really provide more transparency is a key part of it um, where you can't hide. I mean, you know, the property tax can oftentimes be a way to hide all that excess spending that's going on. Even though we see it on our property tax bill, you know, a lot of people will pay it through their escrow. They won't pay it all at one time. Or some people will be renters and they'll say, well, we don't pay the property tax. It's like, yes, you do. The, the landlord just passes that higher property tax to the form of higher rent along, along the way. And so it's really about educating people on seeing where the dollars are flowing and everything else. You know, one of the things that I've been working on um, this year was more on local government spending limits. Kind of like Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights, the Tabor included local spending limits, but there aren't, from what I understand, a lot of other local spending limits. They have they must balance their budget from year to year, but there's not a really, a lot, really a lot of limitations on spending. That may need to be the the next step in part of this movement towards um, reforming and strengthening state spending limits. Um, which, as you know, like I've been working on a lot with a lot of other states on different types of conservative or responsible, responsible or sustainable type of budgets um, based on a broad basis possible. Let's say all funds, if you will, or even all state funds, um, and then limiting the growth rate. To a spending limit of no more than population growth plus inflation. Now, of course, inflation is running at a rapid rate, and so that may be even too high. I always like to make sure that that is a maximum. <laughs> we would love for it to be less, no growth at all, or even cut spending in many places. Um, and so you're starting to see more of these states, I hope, will start to reform their own spending limits and strengthen them. But what do you think about you know, bringing that idea to the local level as well? I think it's a must, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, if things don't go out the local level, they go to the state level and ask for state help, right? And so at the same, local taxpayers are also state taxpayers. And it's really important to, I think, view things holistically, because when you have strong localities, that really only helps the state then advance the cause of a stronger uh, state business climate, lower taxes at the state level. And if you have struggling sittings, the reserve, really the reverse is true. And we've seen this play out time and time again, the bankruptcy of Detroit back home had a tremendous you know, downturn on the state budget and just the kind of stress that it put on Michigan, even though that was, you know, one city, one large city in the state of Michigan, having a city that goes through that kind of distress has horrible, um, really shock waves going through at the state level. So, I mean, 
talking about this uh, together is, is essential. And I think, uh, moreover, you know, looking where we're at today, kind of on the broad scale of uh, state budgets and state spending, you know, the work that you're doing, the work that we're doing to try to raise awareness around needed limits to the growth of government, to where I think, you know, those of us that, you know, really roll up our sleeves and get into state budget practices and look for government waste, fraud, and abuse, you know, there's really ways that we could save a ton of money in every single state budget some more than others, clearly. Um, but looking at the overall scope of things, doing this now for 20 years, I don't think I've seen another time where state budgets have been this awash in cash. And of course, some of this goes back to the debate that you and I were heavily in, of course, on the same side of stopping, trying to stop the federal bailout of, of states as it relates to the so-called stimulus packages you know, coming out, whether it's the Obama era or whether the Biden era, and really raising awareness around how damaging that is for this core concept of federalism. The more addicted that state and local governments get on the federal support, the less autonomy we know directly. It's a straight line relationship that state and local governments have. The more money you get from federal government, the more power the federal government wants to have over you. And so this we're seeing this you know, play out right now with the requirements such as maintenance of effort requirements that come with the federal dollars. They're really huge strings attached. No such thing as a free lunch, as our great uh, mentor Milton Friedman would say. And states right. have so much money right now, though, the danger, of course, is those of us who look at things in a fiscally responsible manner is we're setting ourselves up for failure if and when the economy continues to falter. If we get into a prolonged recession and a severe recession, we're going to have a lot of red ink in the state level, uh, just as we would at the federal level and continue to have. And then I think the question is, is how high is baseline spending at that point that's been built up during the good years? And then how much of a crisis is there? I mean, would there need to be drastic cuts at that point? In some cases, maybe? Or will there be those that will make the case that you need to raise tax uh, rates or raise revenue? And I think that will be a huge debate coming to a state near you very quickly uh, based on what we're seeing in the national economy. So getting the spending piece of this right enables us to get the tax piece of it right. And, you know, the good news is we're on the complete offense when it comes to pro-growth tax reform and pro-taxpayer reforms out there. And I would hate to see that slowed down because of overspending that's going on. So the work that you're doing, uh, working with these states uh, on trying to craft financially responsible budgets is just so important. And how, how many states have had these key tax reforms over the last you know year or two? Well, I mean, we're looking at about half the states have substantially cut taxes in the last two legislative sessions, which that's got to set a record or be darn close to it, at least in my 20 years of following this. And one thing specifically, and of course, I think the right way for states to tax is to do what Texas does and just don't tax personal income, don't tax income, tax consumption and other things. That's the economist's you know, perspective on this, right? And I think there's a great case to be made of the nine states that go without personal income taxes. We detail this every year in rich states, poor states. You know, correlate that and the growth that's gone on in this, those states that have avoided income taxes. And it's almost you know, uh, impossible to ignore the growth uh, premium that's associated with being a no income tax state. Uh, one of the key elements of that is that no income tax states spend about 55 or 60 percent less per capita than states with income taxes. So getting back to your discussion about the needed limits on the growth of government, that's why it's so important. It's almost impossible to be a low tax 
tax or a no income tax state unless you put some real limits on the growth of government. But you know what we've seen this year alone in 2022, Vance, has been nothing short of uh, just remarkable when it comes to the flat tax revolution that we've seen. Yeah. Uh, starting in March, uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, who's a, a great ALEC alum, served in the Iowa Senate, was an ALEC member. Uh, she gave the response, as people were maybe recall, to President Biden's State of the Union address. And just a few hours before that response, she had signed into law the largest tax cuts in Iowa history this year. Working with our ALEC members on the ground, uh, they became a flat tax state. So they had multiple tax brackets on the individual income tax. They have now a single flat rate going forward that's going to get under 4%, and they were above 8% previous to this tax reform. So just really transformational tax reform that's going to put Iowa in a much more competitive position. And then fast forward to the rest of the sessions, we've had four more states become flat tax states. So a grand total of five new flat tax states as part of the revolution this year. And for those of you that follow history, you'll appreciate this. But going back to when states started taxing income, uh, roughly in the, in the progressive era, uh, 120 years ago or so, 110 years ago, we had a in the grand total of that 110 years, we've had four states that went from progressive income tax structures to flat taxes in 110 years, four states. One year, Vance, we've had five more states become flat tax states. So how is that Ooh. for progress? I mean, just That's incredible amazing. the kind of great work that state legislators and their governors are doing because they know this is the time to cut taxes. If you can't cut taxes in an era like this with so much money sitting around state capitals, you're only going to build up baseline spending and you're going to set yourself up for a real world of hurt when the shoe drops and we have an issue with the economy going forward. So it's been great to see. I mean, we've been a, played a big role. Our ALEC members have been so instrumental in getting this done. And it's going to be hard to top this uh, going forward, having five states in one year become flat tax states. Now what's next, Vance, is to have them eliminate the income tax. So our work is still cut out yes. for us, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good problem to have. <laughs> sure <laughs> is. To keep beating that level. You know, I know that I'm going to be doing some work in Louisiana where we're going to be pushing to eliminate the income tax as well. You know, and a big part of that, of course, has got to be spending restraint. Um, as you were mentioning earlier, one of the issues that we've seen in the past that, you know, progressives like to throw at us is, well, look at Kansas. Look, look what happened in Kansas, you know, that they cut taxes and then a couple of years later they had to raise taxes again. But of course, as we know, that was really a spending problem, not a tax revenue problem. There's, there's never a revenue problem. It's always a spending problem. And I think that's the work that we're doing now is to really try to hone in on what the true problem is, whereas where these spending limits come into place. Yes, you need transparency, like at the property tax level or any tax level, really, you need as much transparency as possible. Um, and you need as many limitations on those that are making those tax hikes as much as possible. But you've really got to control spending because spending is the ultimate burden of government. If, if we didn't spend it, well, then you wouldn't have funding to, for the agencies to regulate. If you didn't spend it, then they wouldn't need to intervene in certain markets. They couldn't do it. You know, one of the things, and you were talking about history earlier, one of the things that I like to talk about is, you know, where does this all start, the chicken or the egg? You know, and it really comes, I think, from government getting started was demands by people that they saw that maybe there was a quote unquote public good that wasn't being serviced by the private sector. So they say, you know what, we want government, uh, a group of people to be able to do this. And then once you do that, though, then you're going to have to have somebody that's going to implement it. 
and and run it. And that will need to be government officials in this case. And so now you're going to have to have some sort of spending for the the labor and capital that's going to be used for that. So spending comes first, and then you should determine how you're going to fund it most efficiently and effectively with the form of taxation. And when you when you look at it from that line, it really focuses in on how the problem is is got to be government spending because because that's what comes first throughout the entire sort of government system and when you're di- when you're diving in even further from an economic perspective on which forms of taxes we should have it should be those that are in, in my view that are more related to consumption because income tax anything you tax you're going to get less of right so if you're taxing income you're getting less work and less effort and things that are provide for more economic growth and activity the more that you tax of capital like property or something else the less capital and wealth that you're going to have over time um, and so you kind of dri- are driven driven to the idea that consumption taxes tend to be the best overall and i mean look if, if i had my way jonathan i would i would make it to where that would be the only tax that we would have i, I would get rid of all four other forms of taxation uh and make it the broadest base possible because sound tax policy as we've heard from Mark laffer and others over the over the years is the broadest base possible with the with the lowest rate but now not everybody can get to just a sales tax and i know that's kind of an ideal form of situation with a good strong spending limit but what would you say are kind of the, you know, the the gold the, the gold standards, if you will, for the best types of tax policy? Um, and is there anything else that you would add to kind of what I was going through with that um, line of thought on taxation and government spending? Well, no, that's perfect. I just did a radio segment on this, uh, kind of going through the core principles of good tax policy that we've identified at Alec over the years. And, uh, you know, it also harkens back to our our mutual friend, the recently uh, departed Bob Williams, who was just a mentor and a hero to so many of us who believe in sound budgeting and coming up with uh, common sense ideas to how to craft a a responsible budget, just like families and businesses have to do every month. And the whole idea of priority-based budget budgeting and starting there. And what is it that government must provide to fill its purpose, right? And how do we know if government's doing a good job? What are the metrics there? And those are the questions that we continue to ask of states as we come out and work with them on how to craft a priority-based budget, something that's worked in Washington State under Bob's leadership and so many others going forward. But you have to start there, to your point. And then obviously keeping government as small as possible while achieving all the key core functions of government that are needed, that are real public goods, that can't be provided by the private sector or by individuals or charities, and then raising revenue from there. Because all, all taxes matter, right? They all harm economic growth. When you take a productive dollar out of the productive private sector and put it in the government sector, by definition, you have an efficiency loss. Government's never going to be that competitive and uh, productive with that dollar that the entrepreneur would be, right? So, uh, you know, some taxes are less bad than others. And consumption taxes, I think we certainly agree on that, that that is the least bad way to raise revenue, especially with in that context of a limited government that focuses on core responsibilities. But when you look at the other broad principles of good tax policy, you know, simplicity, transparency, those are you know key elements. It's really hard to get it right if you don't have those things right. Neutrality, you know, that's the idea, as you know well, a government shouldn't be in the business of picking winners and losers through the tax code, although it often is, federal, state, and local government. That's an aspirational goal. Uh, we realize that can be tough in practice to achieve, but it's so important that to keep rates down for everybody, we don't give special favorites to one industry over another, or certainly one individual company over another that some 
sometimes we see being talked about in state uh, debates. And then predictability and then pro-growth is the most important principle because how do you raise long-term revenue for the states or any level of government for that perspective? And Jack Kemp believed this firmly, one of our ALEC heroes. But one of the things that he would always say is you don't raise revenue by increasing tax rates. You raise revenue by increasing the amount of taxpayers in your jurisdiction. And that's one of the key stories that we've learned over the 15 years now of writing rich states, poor states, is just how mobile Americans are. And Americans continue to vote with their feet and leave high tax jurisdictions. You know, California just the other day had debate about their income tax rate by de default basically going above 14% at the state level. Compare that to Texas, zero, and zero in eight other states that have no income tax. And it's, it's no surprise why even if California has some of the best weather on earth, it has Silicon Valley, it has Hollywood, it has all the other things that amenities going for it as a state, why so many people in the last just year of census data, a couple hundred thousand new Americans decided to leave California for the land of opportunity in the other 49 states. Incredible when you think about that. And also at a historical point that people will appreciate if they're political followers, California, this is the first congressional seat that has ever lost in its state history. Going back to statehood in 1850, it's always gained congressional seats because of the inflow of population. More recently, it didn't gain or lose in 2010, and now the 2020 census came in, and this vast majority of out-migration happening, uh, even if they've had foreign immigration coming in and birth rates over death rates, it hasn't been able to keep up with the Americans leaving California and going for more opportunity elsewhere. So this whole idea of pro growth tax policy is so important now, especially as Americans are more mobile than ever. Employers are required, and, and that's a great thing, I think, to give individuals more flexibility of where they'd like to work and have workers' uh, environments be more conducive to themselves and their family life. And as a result, though, you, you aren't stuck working in, a, uh, in an in-person office, let's say, in Silicon Valley or in Manhattan and paying $5,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment, right? You can go buy a house, increase your standard of living, Living, have schools that were actually open for your kids during the lockdowns and actually have a much higher quality of life as a result of this American experiment of federalism and allowing people to prosper wherever they'd like to live. And that's why policy is even more important now for states to get it right. I, I think that's one of the, the key things that I'm working on, you know, Jonathan, with my Let Build Prosper and Get Economic Consulting is making sure that there are strong states, that, that states can really withstand what's happening in D.C. and allow people to flourish, but also get the system of federalism so that states can be able to um, do what's in their best interest to fight back and really limit government spending. But then also at the national level, we really need to fight back as well. And I think, you know, what we've talked about so far is kind of leading us into some of the higher demands, if you will, from what D.C. is putting on us. I mean, there's a lot of headwinds that's coming on to states based on what's happened just over the last couple of, of years from the pandemic and shutdowns, from the seven, nearly $7 trillion of deficit yep. spending that we've had over the last two plus years. It's a massive amount of money um, that's been put into the economy. And then if you think about the amount of inflation from the Federal Reserve taking in about $5 trillion more dollars onto their balance sheet, and that money's got to go in somewhere. You know, I, I think when you said pro-growth earlier, what some will hear is we, is we mean pro-business. 
And it's not pro-business, right? It's really about reducing the barriers that government's putting in people's way and in businesses' way, which are really just employers. It's all just people, okay, that allows for them to flourish, that allows for them to prosper overall. I think whenever you look back to what happened during the Trump years, um, and I was there for a year of, of that, and there was the Trump tax cuts that went in place, you know, a lot of people were like, well, this is just for the rich which is not what the data show. Uh, whenever you see the, the distribution of people who received increases in after-tax income increased a lot at the bottom. Yes, others did too, but a lot more at the bottom. And if you look at wage growth over that period, 18 and 2018 and 2019, you actually saw that lower-income workers had a higher increase in their wages than upper-income workers, meaning there was a reduction in income inequality. Now, there was a lot of other stuff going on too, such as the deregulation along with the tax cuts. I would have loved to see more spending restraint at that time, and I was pushing for that a lot. Um, but but those sort of policies that are pro-growth policies that are free market oriented are really about helping the neediest among us, I think, the most, Jonathan. I mean, some would say that we're, we're heartless and everything else, but that's not the case. If anything, I think by having this top-down approach tends to be heartless by progressives because what it really does is it allows for people at the top to get the income first. I mean, just think about what's happened over the last couple of years years. These great amount of spending, the, the handouts to semiconductor industry from the CHIPS Act, just one thing after another. And then you pair that, of course, um, with a lot of the increases in regulations that have happened in the Biden administration that narrow the, the playing field. It, 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 it makes you know, regulatory capture where it creates barriers for people to be able to enter into the system. At the same time, you know, we've seen a, a rising income inequality at those, as those at the bottom are getting hit the most. And so when we're getting faced with this situation now, and the last one that I'll say is the, the Federal Reserve, the increase in the money supply, inflation, that also hits the lowest income people the most. Even after we had this period of, quote unquote, the great moderation for so long of low inflation, we're kind of out of that now. The, the genie's out of the bottle. And we've got some major issues that are coming on from D.C. And I'm so glad that you're working on fighting back at the state and local level. But kind of what are your thoughts about what's going on in the economy? Some of these issues about helping the neediest among us. Where do you really see it, Jonathan? Well, you know, we need a uh, we need a role reversal here. I think at the federal level, in terms of trajectory, I mean, we yeah. we are you know digging the hole deeper instead of you know the first thing you want to do when you're in a hole is stop digging it deeper, right? And what we saw is almost from moment one, the Biden administration's approach has been really a war on American energy, whether that is shutting down pipelines and stopping you know, new leases on federal land, whether it's this radical interpretation of ESG, that could be a whole nother discussion for us on another episode. Um, and just to see you know, where that has gone to shut down capital in many cases to the energy uh, sector, where you talk to folks and they're not even able to, to raise capital to, to build new projects, even if the market it suggests that uh, there is a demand there, right, for certain additional reliable, affordable energy sources here in the United States. That's such an important point. Uh, but you add that to the tax increases that have been proposed, the weaponizing the IRS and hiring 87,000 new IRS agents. By the way, not to pick up the phone call, as Janet Yellen suggests, when you have a question about how to fill out your tax re return, they're suggesting they're going to raise $200 billion, as you know, in the CPO 10-year score just through that provision. So they're coming hard for audits. 
against entrepreneurs and against so many others, probably gig economy workers. Hopefully they're not going to target conservatives like they did just a decade ago under Lois Lerner with that just a horrible chapter in the IRS's history for targeting political opponents. But I mean, that's been the approach that we've seen, not a pro-growth approach that we need. And, you know, it's uh, you go down the list and you're almost to a, a major initiative. The Biden administration's uh, proposals have been a war on federalism as well, whether that was, you know, the pro act that was talked about that would basically disallow state right to work laws and labor freedom, employee freedom, whether that's uh, federalizing of elections that was talked about uh, here, whether that's the idea as supposed by uh, Janet Yellen that uh, if states took the federal cash for bailouts, that they wouldn't be allowed to cut taxes back home. I mean, if there was a common thread to the Biden administration's big government agenda, it would be to disempower state and local decision making and to centralize more power here in Washington, D.C. That's the thing that's, I think, worried me the most of this administration. And, you know, I was one that wanted to believe, as the president outlined in his inaugural address, that he was going to be here for Red America and Blue America and try to bring people together. And I was optimistic for a short period of time. Uh, maybe it's just the optimist in me. Vance. As you know, I'm a glass right. half full kind of guy, but it's not played out that way whatsoever in Washington. Uh, it has been a brutal last couple of years when it comes to the war on markets, the war on taxpayers, the war on energy, and certainly the war on federalism, as we've seen from this administration. Uh, but you did bring up one thing also that I think is important to note, and that is the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that you worked on, signed into law by President Donald Trump, really a revolutionary tax reform that, you know, he actually made the tax code more progressive here at the federal level, despite the claims of Speaker Nancy Pelosi that it was a billionaire's first tax plan. Actually, you look at it in the average everyday hardworking Americans benefited mightily from the tax reform, mm -hmm. but also American business and bringing uh, those profits back into the United States that were held overseas, you know, probably a trillion or two trillion in profits brought back to the United States to go to work here and create jobs in America versus overseas. But one thing that um, you may, uh, a lot of folks don't follow Senate rules here, and I don't expect them to, right? I mean, that's this, we have some very wonky rules here in Congress, as you've followed, but the phase outs of these tax cuts are coming up sooner than most uh, would uh, suggest or most to know about. And uh, here in the next couple of years, we will see all of those 2017 tax cuts go away on the individual side of that uh, plan if nothing is done in Congress. And of course, what does Congress do best generally is not much, right? And so we have to be very concerned about so many of those benefits of the Trump tax cuts going away. We actually have a, an ALEC model resolution educating around that issue. We've seen already Arizona and Michigan uh, pass that through their state legislatures, calling on Congress to really pay attention to say, this is important tax relief. It was important for American competitiveness to bring jobs back to the United States. And let's not be asleep at the switch and have those tax cuts uh, go away under that very strange Senate rulemaking that happens. And, uh, you know, it's uh, really an important uh, time right now, broadly for the economy. Economy. Anybody that's followed their 401ks very painfully or state pension systems, for that matter, that have really taken a, a hit in valuation, we need to get it right when it comes to fixing this economy. And unfortunately, what we're seeing here is a, more of the same and digging the hole much deeper when it comes to the big government agenda in Washington right now. That's exactly right, um, Jonathan. And so I, I think in this the last few minutes that we have here um, together, um, I think, you know, when you're looking at the rich states, poor states and, um, you know, Utah is number one. I'll make sure to put this in the show notes page as well. You got North Carolina, Arizona, Oklahoma, Idaho, Nevada, uh, Indiana, Florida, number eight, 
North Dakota, Wyoming, and then and Texas. Uh, Texas down, you know, to number eleven. And you have um, I was looking for let's see, uh, Louisiana twentieth. Louisiana's twentieth right now. New York fiftieth. Right, dead last. Right, uh, New Jersey, yeah, right. New Jersey, second to last, and California, third to last. Illinois, right there near the bottom as well. So you you really got a clear distinction, right, between things that tend to work and those things that tend not to work. And a lot in economics, it's it's all about trade offs um, because we have scarcity, uh, we have action and interaction of people within these institutions to satisfy our desires. You know, given scarce resources, and so in order for us to let people prosper, I think. What's great about the rich states, poor states is it provides a good roadmap, right, of how we can prosper more, what we need to be working more at the state level. I think we've been able to identify a lot of key issues throughout our discussion today and even highlighting some of the things that are coming from D.C. I think one of the big issues will be how long will the recession be? How deep will the recession be? I mean, the Federal Reserve, in order to continue to bring down inflation, which is the main thing that they have control over, uh, are going to have have to reduce their balance sheet quite quite a bit. It really hasn't come down much at all, even though they've been raising interest rate. The overnight lending rate between banks, that target rate is up to 3 to 3.25% as of this recording on October 11th, uh, 2022. But there's got to be a lot more that they're going to have to do in order to, to kind of squeeze that inflation out. Um, and so that's going to put more pressure on a lot of these states and the revenue that they're going to bring in and everything else, which goes back to the key parts of spending restraint. But one of the things too, you know, Jonathan is, I know um, Larry Kudlow, one of our friends, he also talks a lot about the Calvary's coming, right? The, the Republicans are likely to win the House. Uh, it'd be great if they won the Senate too. I think that may be more of an uphill battle, but we'll see. Um, but the Biden administration has very poor uh, ratings overall. They haven't really, um, there's a lot of concern about the economy and everything else. So this is a great time for a pro-growth message that is one about liberty, that's making liberty win and to let people prosper at the end of the day. And so I think, you know, with the last couple of minutes that we have here together, Jonathan, what would be kind of your pro-growth policy outlook and, and and what do you see as the kind of the next steps that we should be thinking about from a policy perspective? Wow. Well, that's, that's a big question for a couple of minutes. But let me, let me, let me do this. And that, you know, I think in short, you know, what we need is, uh, and I hope that it's Republicans, Democrats, independents, libertarians, vegetarians across the board, everyone should embrace this pro-liberty agenda. This should not be a partisan agenda, right? Because it's empowering individuals. Uh, but when we look at what needs to be done, I mean, and when we look at 15 years of rich states, poor states, uh, you know, looking at the, as you just talked about, the top and the bottom states, I mean, we have 50 laboratories of democracy and the founders, as we started this discussion, were very you know, wise to choose you know, that where they had, you know, basically wanted interstate commerce to flourish between. They didn't want states to shut down commerce. That's why we have an interstate commerce clause in the Constitution. It's been perverted and set up in a lot of ways to grow government in unlimited sense. But what the founders wanted is basically a 50-state free trade zone, of course, 13 colonies at the time, but they wanted to stop barriers and let people prosper by deciding what's best for themselves and to trade with each other and go to where taxes are lowest and they could have the best standard of living at the lowest cost of living. You know, that was the idea. And, you know, the states give us this incredible roadmap. This is why ALEC exists, is to highlight these case studies from the 50 laboratories of democracy and innovation to talk about what works and what doesn't. This is very common sense stuff. I'm a Midwesterner. I'm a common sense 
sense kind of guy. And, you know, we like to say, you know, what, how can we be more like Utah at number one? How can we be more like Arizona? How can we be more like North Carolina and Texas and Florida and Tennessee and the states that are growing at the national level? How do we replicate those success stories? And how do we avoid the fate of California, New York, Illinois, and the states where people are leaving and jobs are leaving and they're hemorrhaging because they have a failed you know, way of doing business, basically, as a state. It's very clear that as a national level, we need to pick the best case studies and be more like Texas and Florida and less like Yeah, that makes a lot of York. sense. And there's a lot uh, to Jonathan, unpack Jonathan, I appreciate those details. thoughts today. First of all, we've got to stop uh, really look forward to hearing more about them. We've um, continue to be a happy warrior, someone who's right continuing to fight for um, free uh, markets and pro-growth policies. So I appreciate all that you do and continue to do. Thank you to the audience for listening today as we will continue to find ways to break through the problems that are provided in the barriers of government because we are looking for pro growth, free market reforms that are based on capitalism that allows for prosperity overall. So thank you for joining us again. Hope you have a prosperous day. Uh, let people prosper. <laughs>